Love is all you need. Saint Therese of Lisieux by Damien Warne and Joan Florey. It's finished. I just can't believe it, thought Therese. I seem to have been writing forever. And to think, if Pauline and I hadn't been reminiscing that day, it must be all of a year ago, then I'd never have been sitting here in my cell, perched on this little stool and writing in an exercise book by the dim light of an oil lamp, and one that doesn't function properly at that. I still can't think why my sister wanted me to write about my childhood. But Pauline, Mother Agnes of Jesus, was the prioress of Carmel at the time, and despite my protestations, she was quite firm. Sister Therese of the Child Jesus, I command you to write down everything you can remember about your childhood. And so, much against my will, I have done just that. Sister Therese steadied the old desktop, which she was balancing on her knees, and began leafing through the closely written pages of the cheap exercise book. It was now January the 20th, 1896, and it had taken her almost exactly a year to complete. Quite a task, considering that the only time she could give her attention to writing was after Compline each evening. Turning over the pages... Sister Therese smiled to herself. I always wanted to be a nun, right back as far as I can remember, and I've never felt any differently. Such an early aspiration to the cloister isn't so surprising with parents as devout as hers. Louis Martin, Therese's father, left home to become a monk when he was quite young, and would possibly have been one had he made the requisite studies. Zolie Guérin, too, her mother, wanted to enter a convent and devote her life to helping the poor. She, however, was persuaded that the religious life was not for her, and in her disappointment she took up the trade of lace-making, for which the town of Alençon is famous. One day the two passed each other on the bridge in Alençon. There was a mutual attraction and eventually they married in the church of that town on July the 15th, 1858. Although they produced a large family, of which Therese was the youngest, they unfortunately lost two little boys and two little girls. Growing up in the company of four sisters, and being the baby of the family, she not unnaturally was their darling. Still smiling, Sister Therese turned another page in her exercise book and read, the first things I can remember are tender smiles and my sister's caresses. No one can imagine how I loved father and mother and my sisters, and I showed my affection for them in thousands of ways. Mind you, I was a little monkey too. I remember reading a letter mother wrote about me. Celine is quite naturally good, but as for Therese, I don't know what's to become of her. She is such a little rascal. She's intelligent enough, but not nearly as docile as her sister. When she says no, nothing can make her change her mind. You can keep her in a cellar all day without getting a yes out of her. Therese Martin was proud, capricious and oversensitive too. One minute she was full of gaiety and the next she was in tears. The influence of her sisters, however, curbed her excesses and there was always the discipline of her parents. It is a wonder how you were able to bring me up without spoiling me, but you certainly did. You never let me off with a single fault and never went back on a decision you had made, though you never rebuked me without good reason. Yet I must have been hard to control, for I was impetuous and never did things by halves. I remember the time Leonie had outgrown her dolls and came to look for Celine and myself carrying a basketful of their dresses and little bits of material and other oddments, with the dolls laid on top. Here you are, she said. Choose what you want. 
Celine took a ball of silk braid, but I put out my hands and said, I choose everything, and carried off the basket, dolls and all, without further ado. I think this trait characterizes the whole of my life. I knew that to become a saint one had to suffer much, always aim at perfection and forget oneself. I saw that one could be a saint in varying degrees, for we are free to respond to our Lord's invitation by doing much or little in our love for him. Then, just as before, I cried out, I choose everything. You see, my God, I don't want to be a saint by halves. I am not afraid to suffer for your sake. I only fear doing my own will, so I give it to you and choose everything that you will. But I am letting my pen run away with me. I am forgetting that I am only four years old, and here I am, talking about my adolescence. Therese's days were certainly happy, but her first experience of suffering was about to begin. I can remember clearly all that happened when Mother was ill, especially her last weeks on earth. The moving ceremony of the last rites impressed me very much, and I can remember the exact spot I was kneeling and how Father cried. The day after Mother died, he lifted me into his arms and said, Here, little one, kiss your darling Mother for the last time. Silently I touched her cold forehead with my lips. I don't think I cried much, and I certainly didn't tell anyone what was going on inside me. The loss of her mother, the departure of her adopted mother, her sister Pauline, to the convent, and their eventual move from Alençon to Lisieux had a profound effect on the young Thérèse. She lost much of her gaiety and spent a lot of time alone with her own thoughts, and although she had always been devout, she now put much more store in the things of heaven than of earth. My thoughts used to become very deep then, Sister Therese had written, and though I had no idea what meditation was, I soon lost myself in prayer. I listened to the sounds that came from far away and the murmur of the wind. Sometimes snatches of military music were carried from the town, making me feel rather sad. Indeed, Earth seemed to be a place of exile, and I always dreamt of heaven. Still, there were many consolations at Le Buissonnet, the child's new home. It was a charming house, with lovely trim gardens at the front and back, and was also not far from the delightful Jardin de l'Etoile, where her father often took her for walks. In fact, he did all in his power to compensate his motherless little queen, as he lovingly called her. When she was not at school at the Benedictine convent, where she inevitably finished top of the class, he took her on fishing trips and to picnics in the country. Most of all, though, she loved going to church, especially on Sundays and feast days, where the solemnity of such occasions was also greeted with celebrations at home. Her sisters were almost like mothers, standing up for and always taking the part of the introspective little girl. Marie took over the domestic side of the house, and the very presence of the elder sister meant love and security for the whole family. You can imagine the effect on me, Thérèse had written, when Marie made known her intention of following Pauline to Carmel. How can I describe what went on in my heart? In a moment I saw what life is really like, full of suffering and continual separations, and I burst into tears. I didn't know the meaning of sacrifice then because I was weak, so very weak that I wonder now how I was able to bear such a trial. Eventually, it was so unbearable that I became really ill. I don't know how to describe that strange illness. I said things I did not think, and did things as if I were forced to do them in spite of myself. I seemed delirious nearly all of the time, but I am sure I never lost my reason for a moment. Sometimes I was in a coma for hours on end, unable to move at all, though all through it I was able to hear distinctly what anyone near me was saying, even in a whisper. 
can remember it to this day. I became frightened of everything. My bed seemed to be surrounded by frightful precipices, and even nails in the wall frightened me because they looked like great charred fingers. One day, Father was looking down on me in silence, holding his hat, when suddenly it seemed to turn into a horrible shape. Again, I was so terrified that Father went out of the room sobbing. The dejected father was convinced his daughter was dying, so much so that he had a novena of masses said for her whilst keeping prayerful vigil by her bedside. One afternoon, in utter desperation, Marie, Leonie, and Celine turned to the statue of Our Lady beside their sister's bed, and with all the fervor in their hearts, they begged the Mother of God to save their little sister. had written, I too turned to my heavenly mother, asking her to take pity on me. Suddenly, the statue came to life, and Mary appeared utterly lovely, with a beauty that I could not possibly describe. There was a wonderful sweetness and goodness about her face, but what went straight to my heart was her smile. Then all at once, my pain was gone. I heard Marie call out, She's cured! And so I was. Soon after my cure, I realized what a great grace I had been given, and at the same time, I was given the grace to realize that the only glory that matters is the glory that lasts forever, and that one doesn't have to perform shining deeds to win it, but only to hide one's acts of virtue from others. I was sure I was born to be great and I began to wonder how I should set about winning my glory. Then I knew that my glory lay in becoming a saint. Recovered and well, Therese now had a new purpose in life, but this determination to be holy was met by an attack of scruples. What martyrdom! It lasted about two years, and no one could possibly understand what I had to go through unless they had gone through it themselves. Every single thought, and even my most commonplace actions, became a source of worry and anxiety. The girl made herself ill unnecessarily, and the headaches from which she had suffered returned. What made matters worse as she entered her thirteenth year was that Marie, who had been talking about entering Carmel, now did so. The absence of her eldest sister caused her great distress, but little by little, Therese began to regain her strong will, and with it came the equal determination to become a saint. Her one consolation was to turn to Jesus, who would never, ever leave her. Her increased attention to prayer had the immediate effect of ridding her of her scruples, although it had not cured her of her childlike propensity to tears and her extreme sensitivity. It took a rebuke from her father to do that. When I got home from midnight mass on Christmas Day, I knew that I should find my shoes standing in the fireplace filled with presents, as I had always done since I was little. Father used to love to see how happy I was and hear my cries of delight as I took each little surprise packet from my magic shoes, and his pleasure made me happier still. But this year, Father was cross, and from upstairs I overheard him saying, Therese ought to have outgrown all this sort of thing, and I hope this will be the last time. This cut me to the quick, and Celine, knowing how sensitive I was, whispered to me, Don't go down yet. You'll only go and cry if you open your presence in front of Father. But here was a new Therese. I was completely changed. I held back my tears, and then, trying to stop my heart beating so fast, I ran downstairs picked up my shoes and unwrapped my presents joyfully. Father didn't look cross any more, and he entered into the fun of it. As regards Celine, well, she thought she must have been dreaming, but this was no dream, for I had got back the strength of mind I had lost at four and a half. Therese was really happy again, and she desired nothing more but to love God and serve Him alone. One Sunday, when she was at Mass, 
a little picture she had of the crucifixion slipped out of her prayer book. see one of the wounds in our Lord's hands, with blood flowing from it. It pierced my heart so much to see his precious blood falling and with no one bothering to catch it, that I decided to catch those drops of blood, in spirit that is, and pass them on to others. The cry of Jesus as he died, I thirst, echoed in my soul, inflaming my heart with a burning love. I long to satisfy his thirst for souls and to save them for him, no matter what the cost. At this time, there was a notorious criminal by the name of Pranzini, who was condemned to death for committing several murders. He remained unrepentant. Therese wanted above anything else to save him, and she prayed unceasingly to this end, hoping too that his conversion would be a sign from God that she was to spend her life saving sinners. Imagine her delight when she read in the paper the next day that on the scaffold Pranzini had seized the crucifix the priest held out to him and kissed it with great feeling. Pranzini was Therese's first convert, and buoyed up with that success, she wanted nothing more out of life now than to save people like him. And this, she knew, could best be done by giving herself completely to God. Only one place could satisfy her now. I had no guide, no light, save that which burned within my heart, and yet this light did guide my way, most surely than the noonday sun, unto the place where waited one who knew me well, and that place was Carmel. At first, her family couldn't countenance such a decision in one so young, but the girls' sincerity soon won their hearts. The hardest part, however, was yet to come, how to break the news to her father, a widower who had already given two daughters to Carmel. Not only that, the man was far from well. Nevertheless, her mind was made up. I approached father, Therese had written. He was sitting in the garden, and I walked slowly up and sat down beside him. What is it, little queen? Tell me. Through my tears, I told him about Carmel and my longing to enter, and then he too began to weep, but he never said a word against me not going. Father dried his eyes and stood up. Then he picked a little flower explaining how carefully God had brought it to blossom and preserved it until that day. So striking was the resemblance of that little flower to Therese that it seemed I was listening to the story of my own life. I also noticed that the roots of the little flower had come out of the ground quite undamaged, just as though they were destined to start life again in some other and more fertile soil. Once the family had accepted the idea, it was necessary to consult the appropriate ecclesiastical authorities. Canon de la Trouette, the spiritual director of Carmel, considered a 14-year-old far too young to take such a weighty decision and refused outright. Mother Prioress backed him up. When the bishop was consulted, he, in saying no, also reminded her that it was her duty to remain with her father. But Therese still had one string to her bow. Monsieur Martin had arranged to take both she and Celine on holiday to Italy, which included a visit to Rome. The young aspirant believed that she only had to speak to the Pope, and that would do the trick. Therese went off with high hopes, and indeed the pilgrims from the diocese did have an audience with the Pope. Wearing a simple white cassock and a white cape, Leo XIII was sitting on a raised throne, 
surrounded by prelates and other dignitaries of the church. As was the custom, each pilgrim came forward in turn, knelt down and kissed first the foot and then the hand of the Pope. Two noble guards then touched the pilgrim on the shoulder as a sign to rise and move on. No one uttered a word. I had made up my mind to speak, when Father Révroni, standing on the right of His Holiness, announced in a loud voice that he absolutely forbade anyone to speak to the Holy Father. With my heart pounding, I looked imploringly at Céline. She whispered just one word. Speak! A moment later, I was on my knees before him and had kissed his slipper. He gave me his hand. Then I raised my eyes, brimming with tears, to his and began my appeal. Most Holy Father, I want to ask you a great favour. He bent his head at once, his face almost touching mine. I began again. Most Holy Father, in honour of your jubilee, let me enter Carmel at fifteen. Father Revroni was startled and far from pleased. Your Holiness, he interrupted, this child wants to enter Carmel. Her superiors are already looking into the question. Very well, my child, said His Holiness. Do what your superiors decide. But, Holy Father, if you said yes, everyone else would be willing. He gazed at me steadily and then he said, You will enter Carmel if it is God's will. On the eve of her 15th birthday, the Bishop of Bayeux relented and permission was given for Thérèse to enter Carmel. Thérèse Martin soon settled down to life in the convent. Everything delighted her, not the least her own little cell. The nuns who kept an eye on her in those early days were truly amazed by her composure and silent obedience to the convent rule and could not credit that this was just a young girl of fifteen. Yet everything was made deliberately hard for her. Mother Prioress, Marie de Gonzague, decided that there was to be no favouritism here. She probably hasn't even got a genuine vocation at all, she said. The chances are she just wants to be with her two elder sisters. After all, she's come from a prosperous home and no doubt spoiled to distraction, being as she's the baby of the family, and still wants her own way. But we'll see. The mother prioress was determined to find out at once and went out of her way to make life as unpleasant as possible for the new postulant. She humiliated and constantly rebuked and reprimanded her in front of the other nuns. But she noticed, too, to Thérèse's credit, that no matter what was said, the girl never resented it, neither did she try to excuse or defend herself. I could never meet Mother de Gonzague without getting a rebuke, wrote Sister Thérèse. On one occasion, I left a cobweb in the cloisters, and in front of everyone she said, The cloisters are obviously swept by a fifteen-year-old, and what a disgrace they are. Go and sweep that cobweb away, and in future... Be more careful. Therese's I-choose-all attitude of her younger days showed itself again in her unstinting effort to become a saint. She said one day to a priest giving a retreat, Father, I want to become a saint. I want to love God as other saints have loved him. But my child, how could you possibly think of such a thing? That is no more than pride and presumption on your part. Your duty is to attend to the commands of your faith. You really must moderate such excessive desires. But, Father, I don't think these wishes of mine are rash. Didn't our Lord say, Be perfect as your Father is perfect? The following year, January the 10th, 1889, Therese was clothed with the habit, but not before experiencing a frightening temptation that of feeling she was unsuited for the Carmelite life. After the public ceremony, she re-entered the convent and exchanged her magnificent white velvet gown, which was trimmed with swansdown and point d'Alençon lace, 
which her father had wished his little queen to wear, for the rough homespun fabric of the Carmelite habit. Her beautiful fair ringlets were cut off, and she took the white veil of a novice. That same evening, Sister Therese of the Child Jesus gave a fellow novice a little picture. On the back was written, Ask Jesus that I may become a great saint. On the 8th of September 1890, Therese took her vows, and although her father attended his daughter's profession, he was a very sick man. During the year, he had suffered a relapse of a pre-existing illness and deteriorated rapidly. The following year, he died. Her father's illness had proved to be a most painful time for the young Therese, but despite her anguish, her earnestness grew as she recalled the humiliations of Jesus during his passion, and for this reason she added to Sister Therese of the Child Jesus and of the Holy Face. After Monsieur Martin's death, Céline decided that she too desired to enter Carmel, but on her account too there were many objections, none more so than a nun who protested that three Martin girls at Carmel were quite enough without having any more. In her exercise book, Therese had written, You know, my Jesus, how much I have desired that Father's trials should count as his purgatory, and that he is now with you in heaven. I long to know that he is there. I do not ask you to tell me yourself. I only ask for a sign. You know the attitude of one of the nuns to Céline's entry. I will take it that my father has gone straight to heaven if she no longer raises any objections. Oh, how infinite God's love really is! How caring! He holds the hearts of his creatures in the palm of his hands, for indeed he changed that nun's heart, for lo and behold, she was the first one I met after I had made my request, and with tears in her eyes she apologized to me for hindering my sister's entry. My one desire now, Jesus my Lord, my love, is to love you, even to folly. Sister Therese of the Child Jesus and Holy Face dipped her pen into the inkwell and wrote to her sister Pauline, Mother Agnes of Jesus, And so, my darling mother, this is the end of the story of Therese. Deep in your heart, you know her better than she knows herself. You know what Jesus has done for her, and so will pardon me for having cut short the story of her religious life. The story of the little flower. How will it end? Perhaps the little flower will be gathered while still fresh, or be transplanted to some other shore. Who knows? Only God knows that. Please wind the cassette to the end and then turn it over. The story of Sister Therese continues on side two.
Therese closed the exercise book and removed the old writing desktop from her lap. Her task was completed. The next day, Mother Agnes, Pauline's name by profession, received the manuscript, but because of her manifold duties, she put it to one side, and it was not until the end of her term of office that she looked at it, and that was well over a year later. On June 2, 1897, Mother Agnes told Mother Marie de Gonzague, who succeeded her, about the manuscript, suggesting at the same time that as Thérèse's account of her life was incomplete and contained very little about her time in Carmel, that the story should be continued. Mother de Gonzague agreed. This time, Sister Thérèse was provided with a good quality exercise book and a new pen. Opening the book, the young sister smoothed the cover flat and once again began writing. Dear Reverend Mother, you have asked me to take up my pen again and I am not going to argue about it, but simply do as I am told. I do not seek to know what use this manuscript can possibly be and I have no hesitation at all in saying, Mother, that I should not in the least be offended if you burnt it before my eyes without even reading it. Well, as you know, I have always wanted to be a saint. But at the same time, when I think of the saints, I know perfectly well that I am no more like them than a grain of sand trodden underfoot by passers-by. Yet instead of getting discouraged, I say to myself, God would never inspire these desires if he thought they could not be realised. So in spite of my littleness, I know there must be a way, a direct route to heaven. We live in an age of inventions, as you know, dear mother, and the wealthy no longer have to take the trouble to climb the stairs. Instead, they take the lift. And that is what I have to do. Find a lift, a lift that will take me straight to Jesus, because I am too little to climb the steep stairway myself. So I searched the scriptures and came across these words. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. Then I knew that Jesus himself would be the lift. In his arms he would take me to heaven. So you see, Mother, there is no need for me to grow up at all. On the contrary, I must remain little and become even more so. This passage from the scriptures, combined with Unless you become as little children you will not enter the kingdom of God, were the ones from which she learned her little way. Childlikeness to Therese meant a complete dependence on God, a way of childlike love. This loving abandonment changed her and showed itself in every single aspect of her life. The food of real love, she wrote, is sacrifice. Just in proportion as you deny yourself any kind of self-indulgence, your love becomes something stronger and less self-regarding. What I did try to do was to thwart my self-will, which always seemed determined to get its own way, to repress the rejoinder which sometimes came to my lips, to do little acts of kindness without attaching any importance to them, to miss no single opportunity of making some small sacrifice, here by a smiling look, there by a kindly word, always doing the tiniest things right, and doing it for love. During her early days at Carmel, and by way of making a sacrifice, she wore a small cross with iron points. These bit into her flesh and eventually made her ill. It was then she realised that outward mortification is of little use if it isn't allied to the selflessness of an ever-watchful love. Being of an affectionate nature, what proved to be one of her greatest problems and caused her to struggle constantly was the close proximity of her two loving sisters, Pauline and Marie, and to someone who suggested that their presence in the convent was a great consolation to her, she replied, Oh no, it wasn't to live with my sisters that I entered Carmel. And in fact, she even went to the point of depriving herself of their company, even during recreation. 
I was asked by someone, she wrote, how I could react if one of my sisters was suddenly taken ill. Would I have gone straight to the infirmary? No, I replied. I would have gone to recreation without making inquiries, but I would have done this in such a way that no one would have known the sacrifice I was making. Later, she was made responsible for the novices, and although she would have far rather be reprimanded than reprimand, she nevertheless discharged her duties with prudence, wisdom and firmness. On the physical plane, she ate everything set before her, even the food she found most distasteful, but far worse than this was the cold. The thing that I have suffered most from during my religious life is the cold. It was so bitterly cold in the convent, I sometimes thought I should die of it. When she became ill, and she was already ill when she wrote the manuscript for Mother de Gonzague, she never used feeling poorly as an excuse to be dispensed from her duties. At one time, during community exercise, she was so exhausted that she sat down, but at a sign from one of the other nuns, she rose to her feet and remained standing until the end. On another occasion, the infirmarian thought a walk in the garden would do the invalid good. Therese knew better, even so she did as she was told. The little sister offered a hundred and one acts of self-denial every day in her endeavour to please God, and none of them were easy. But by far the hardest and greatest test of her love was her darkness of soul, as she called it those times of depression when all she longed for was a little encouragement as she travelled the pathways to sainthood. Only very rarely did the sunshine break through, and when it did, it was sometimes in answer to prayer. The power of prayer, she wrote, is certainly wonderful. One might liken it to a queen who has always free access to the king and can obtain everything she asks for. It isn't necessary to read beautiful prayers from a book, prayers composed for our particular need before God will hear us. If this were the case, what a poor state I'd be in. Saying the office is a great joy to me, but apart from this, I haven't the courage to search in books for wonderful prayers. Besides, there are so many of them, I wouldn't know which ones to choose, and that would give me a headache. So I simply act like a child who can't read, and I tell God quite simply all I want to say, and he always understands. Prayer for me is simply raising my heart, a simple glance towards heaven, an expression of love or gratitude in the midst of trials or of joys. Whenever I am so dry that I can't think of a single good thought or anything to say, then I always say an Our Father or a Hail Mary very slowly, and these prayers alone cheer me up and nourish me. But perhaps the greatest favour which dispelled all the clouds of darkness from above Therese was the gift of understanding charity. Therese wrote, In saying, Love one another as I have loved you, I knew that Jesus would never ask the impossible, so there must be a way to love as he loved. Then it occurred to me that I could indeed love like Jesus, if Jesus did the loving in me, and this I knew he is perfectly willing to do. So whenever I am charitable, Lord, I know that it is you yourself acting through me, and the closer I come to you, the better I shall be able to love. And this applies to the sisters in Carmel. Not that we have any enemies here in Carmel, but we do have to contend with our natural feelings. One sister attracts, while another, one would go out of one's way to avoid meeting her. When I was still a novice, I can remember that at ten to six each evening, someone had to leave meditation to take Sister St. Peter along to the refectory because she was an invalid. It cost me a lot to offer my services because I knew how difficult she was to please, almost impossible. 
but it was a wonderful chance for me. So very humbly, I got up to help her. First her stool had to be moved, and it must be carried just so, and not too quickly. I had to go behind her and support her by her girdle. I tried to do this as gently as I could, but if she thought she was going to stumble, then I got the blame. You're going too fast! My goodness, I will hurt myself! So I went more slowly, and then it was, Why don't you keep up with me? Where's your hand? You are letting me go, and I shall fall over. How right I was when I said you were too young to look after me. At last we arrived at the refectory, but that wasn't the end of it. She had to be manoeuvred very skilfully into her seat so as not to knock herself. Then her sleeves rolled back just so. After this I could go. But it wasn't long before I noticed that she couldn't cut her bread very easily, so I used to do that for her too. Doing this without being asked won her heart completely, though I learnt later that it was my smile which touched her most. But dear Mother Gonzague, my good acts are not always accompanied by such a smile. Neither have I found the practice of charity always so easy. For a long time, I had to kneel during meditation near a sister who could not stop fidgeting. If not with her rosary, it was with goodness knows what else. Maybe no one else heard it, but I have such a sensitive ear. I wanted to turn round and glare at the culprit to make her stop fidgeting. But deep down in my heart, I knew that the best thing to do was to put up with it patiently for the love of God first, but also so as not to hurt her feelings. So I kept quiet, bathed in perspiration often enough, while my prayer was nothing more than the prayer of suffering. In the end, I tried to find some way of bearing it peacefully and joyfully. I even tried to like this awful little noise by listening to it keenly as if it were some magnificent concert and spent the rest of the time offering it to Jesus. Another time, when we were washing handkerchiefs in the laundry, a sister opposite me kept on splashing me with dirty water. I was tempted to step back and wipe my face, just to show her that I would be obliged if she'd be a bit more careful. But I didn't. Why should I refuse such treasures so generously offered? So I tried hard to enjoy being splashed with dirty water, and by the end of half an hour I had acquired a real taste for this novel form of aspersion. So you see, Mother, what a very little soul I am. I can only offer to God very little things, but these sacrifices bring great peace of soul, though I often let these chances slip by. It is to Therese's merit that love clearly does not mean tremendous actions, but can be practised in the ordinary business of daily living, just as small acts of self-denial can be as meritorious as large ones. Yet in her heart of hearts, she still wished to do more. To love you, Jesus, and to be a Carmelite, surely this should satisfy me. Yet I feel the call for more vocations still, I want to be a warrior, a priest, an apostle, a doctor of the church, a martyr. There is no heroic deed I do not wish to perform. But I knew I could not be all of those things. Then it came to me that without love, apostles could no longer spread the gospel and martyrs would refuse to shed their blood. Love is everything. All vocations are summed up in love. And that love embraces every time and place, because it is eternal. Then I cried out, Jesus, my love, I have found my vocation. It is love. Yes, there in the heart of the church, I will be love. On Trinity Sunday, June the 9th, 1895, Sister Therese of the Child Jesus and the Holy Face made a total offering of herself to God. A few days later in chapel, she had a rare ecstasy. For the briefest of seconds, God showed her his heart aflame with love. It was the first indication that he had accepted her offering. She wrote, In the early hours of Good Friday, Jesus gave me cause to hope that I should soon be joining him. I had retired to my cell, and hardly had I put my head on my pillow 
when I felt a burning stream rise to my lips. As I had already put out my lamp, I restrained my curiosity and slept peacefully until morning. The rising bell went at five o'clock, and I went over to the window at once and found my handkerchief soaked in blood. I was filled with hope, convinced that our Lord on Good Friday, the anniversary of his death, had let me hear his first call to heaven. Therese managed to hide her illness from everyone except the mother prioress for a time. Even her two beloved sisters, Marie and Pauline, did not know until further hemorrhages and a persistent cough revealed the fact that she was very ill. During the summer months, the invalid picked up sufficiently to be allowed to sit out in the gardens, where she continued to write. But the winter brought another setback as the cold and damp settled in. Sister Therese became breathless, feverish, and could now barely walk, while in her cell where she sat to try and complete her manuscript, she had great difficulty in holding the pen. One day, when she was in great pain, having been cauterized, the nun looking after her said, This surely must be the first time in your life you've had to suffer. Therese pointed to a glass of medicine, whose color hardly betrayed its bitterness. You would think that glass held a delicious potion, wouldn't you? But I can assure you that it's very bitter. My life has been like that. Everyone thinks it's been a sweet draught, but it's been very bitter. Yet I have learned how to convert bitterness into sweetness and joy. Are you suffering a lot, then? Yes, but it's what I have so much desired. The invalid survived winter, but everyone knew she would not recover. In her conversations with Pauline and Marie, she begged them not to be unhappy should her death be preceded by great suffering, because this is what she had asked of God. In June, Therese was moved to the infirmary, but there was still work for her to do. Her primary task was to finish the manuscript on her religious life and also tie up her earthly affairs. The vocation of a Carmelite nun is to make sacrifices and to pray for priests. Therese had always prayed for priests, but she had also been asked to adopt two, both missionaries, for her special prayers. She had kept in correspondence with them, giving advice when asked and assuring them of her intercessions. Now, with her approaching death, she felt it her duty to inform them, saying at the same time that she hoped she would still be able to help them from heaven. I am perfectly certain that I shall not remain inactive in heaven. My one desire is to keep on working to save souls. That is what I keep on asking God, and I am sure he will say yes. She said to her sister Pauline, I feel that my mission is soon to begin, to make others love God as I do, and to teach them my little way. I will spend my heaven in doing good upon earth, and won't rest until time is no more. Then I shall rest and be able to rejoice, for the number of God's elect will be complete. By the middle of July, the frail sister had finished her manuscript and handed it over to Mother de Gonzague, the prioress, who said that it would be read to the community on the first day of August, and that it might even be published as a book later on. In her last days on earth, Therese suffered dreadfully. Even so, she remained bright and cheery. Can a victim of love find anything her beloved sends terrible? Every moment he sends what I can bear and no more. To add to her sufferings, she felt that God had deserted her, and a great feeling of despair swept over the dying nun. At her request, the room was sprinkled with holy water and a blessed candle lit. One night, the infirmarian found her awake, her eyes wide open. What are you doing? she asked. You ought to be trying to sleep. I can't, sister. I am suffering too much, so I pray instead. But what do you say to Jesus? Nothing. I... I just love him. August passed into September, and her agony intensified. 
Her body was burning with fever, and she could no longer bear to be touched. Even the smallest sound was like a thunderclap. The chalice is full to overflowing. I would never have believed that I could bear so much suffering. I can only explain it by my great desire to save souls. Thy will be done, O Lord. Thy will be done. All that I have written about suffering is true, but I do not regret in the least surrendering myself to love. On September the thirtieth, at about five o'clock in the evening, Mother Agnes noticed a change in her sister's face. She told Mother Prioress, who in turn assembled the community. For another two hours, Therese suffered on. Am I not in my death agony? Am I not going to die? She asked. You are, but maybe it's God's will to delay it for another few hours. So let it be. I would not want to suffer any less. Almost immediately, Sister Therese fell back, her head leaning to the right. Then suddenly, she lifted herself and opened her eyes really wide. Her face was no longer the tortured face of the dying; it had become radiant. It was almost transfigured as she gazed beyond the statue of Our Lady that was once in her home. For several moments she remained like this, then her head fell back onto the pillow, and her eyes closed. Her last words had been, "Oh, how I love him!" My God, I love you. Therese Martin was just twenty-four years and nine months old. 